so that people can learn all about what an amazing nation this is and the kind of freedom it offers all of us was that no matter what period of time you learned American history, you probably learned it wrong. If you read an article and there are no references to original sources, probably shouldn't believe what you're reading. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 48. Hello and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Uh, a few items first. Head over to the podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and follow me on the various social media buttons to support the show through social media by sharing the episodes of the show. The Facebook button links to my Eating Liberty Facebook group. That is where I ask questions of people for future guests or post information about food rights or just general discussions about food and recipes. To that food rights issue, I am building a resource page for cottage food information, which should be ready to publish soon. It's going to be an ongoing project featuring the cottage laws state-by-state, state, as well as food right issues, uh, raw milk being one of the important ones each state is facing. There are also other ways you can support the show. A few clicks of the mouse and some kind words in the form of a five-star rating and a positive review on your favorite podcatcher alerts those platforms that there is engagement and they should present that show to more people. Another way you can support the show is with donations through PayPal, Patreon, or Bitcoin, which are also linked on the podcasts page. And for you coffee or tea and Sunday brunch folks, buy a coffee mug from my Cranky Without Coffee mug store and download the Muffins e-cookbook right on the podcasts page. Just give me your email address, and then you can download the cookbook, and I'll send you a couple emails every week or so. If you spend more than 10 seconds on social media, you will run into people who are probably fine folks, but they've been misinformed. Some might even think the Constitution lost its force because Hitler was so good at propaganda. Bite back against such thinking with a subscription to Liberty Classroom with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. There you'll find over 20 courses from American history and the Constitution, as well as politics, economics, logic, and even sci-fi and liberty. Get the master level, and that's a lifetime membership, which gets you access to every course yet to be created, plus more perks. Click through the culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback link to learn the details and bite back against the failed education from the state. culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. My guest today is Karen Q of the Patriot Tours NYC. Karen is the founder and owner of Patriot Tours and gives tours through the colonial streets of New York City, featuring the Revolutionary War Tour, the Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr Tour, or the Revolutionary War Spies, the Culper Spy Ring Tour. Karen is the author of a soon-to-be-published book about Theodosia Burr, the exceptional daughter of Aaron Burr. Karen has also appeared in 26 episodes of the Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum. Karen and the Patriot Tours have been featured on Fox News, NBC, and Public Radio. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hi, Dan. It's great to be here. 
Well, I'm glad that you're here. We have exchanged IMs and this and that to make this all work out. And so I'm very excited. And uh, so before we get into all of this, uh, give us a little bit of background, what it is that you do and where you do it and and how you got into this very interesting business. Sure. Um, I'm a Revolutionary War historian based in New York City. And I study the time period of colonial America through the founding period, and um, especially the role New York City played in that. I give tours where I teach people about um, the American Revolution. I also do a tour where I teach people about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr um, from the historic perspective rather than kind of that musical thing that's going on today. I also appear on the Travel Channel on a show called Mysteries at the Museum where I comment on historic artifacts and um, I do podcasts like yours, and I'm getting ready to launch my own video series in the fall called History Like You Never Learned It in School, where I plan to teach the entire American Revolution um, no, um, no revisionism, no political correctness, so that people can learn all about what an amazing nation um, this is and the kind of freedom it offers all of us. Well, that sounds spectacular, and it's Kind of funny that you mentioned that because I'm going to ask you a question in a minute, but I'm going to fanboy for a moment and say that I absolutely love your Facebook page, uh, particularly the then and now side by side images. Uh, it just, I get something out of that. And having spent time bopping around the West Village and the Soho World Trade area, it really means something to me to see the old and then, then now the new. So you do a lot of research, and that much is clear on your posts. So since you brought it up, without bashing public school education, how has your job changed your view of what you probably were taught about the founder, about the founders or history in general? Well, I think probably the most interesting thing that it taught me was that no matter what period of time you learned American history, you probably learned it wrong, depending upon how education at that time wanted you to view the nation. So in the case I grew up, I went to elementary school in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. Um, so it was very different from what kids are learning today, but neither was entirely right. And when I started reading original documents myself, I found out that the story was far better than anything you ever learn in school. Um, thus my series, History Like You Never Learned It in School. Um, once you learn the real story of the people who were there and what life was like and everything that was going on, it's so much more interesting and engaging and real and inspiring. I think that you're right about that. And I have been doing my own reading and podcast listening to historians who don't get into the PC revisionists portion of it. And it's a fascinating story. So why would you want to change it? I don't understand. Right. And and there's a very popular book now. I'm, I'm not going to say the name of it, but you just might see me in my video series, drop that book into a garbage bin. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just so many. It could be so, it could be so many of those books. Yeah, you, anyway, you might see me occasionally pick up a book and just uh, maybe since I'm in New York City, maybe I'll drop it into a recycling bin so I don't offend anyone by throwing it in the wrong bin. But um, you might see oh, me do that uh, occasionally. That would, you know, that might make a funny video. <laughs> <laughs> if you're into the uh, trolling people, put it on Twitter on fire and that would be interesting. I know. But, well, you know, or originally, um, I didn't want to do anything that extreme, but someone who's advising me on my series suggested that I do it and that the best way to get people to listen to me would be to do something controversial once in a while. Well, you know, being clear and definitive with no milk toast opinions is definitely a way to get responses. Either lover or hater is a lot better than just eh. Right. And you know, one of the things so. I do on all of my tours, and you see me do this on social media, is I always refer back to original documents, original prints, regular, original um, documents like newspapers or broadsides or personal correspondence or memoirs, because you know I don't want people to necessarily just believe me. I would rather give people the tools to go out and find out for themselves. 
and make up their own minds about what they think of people and events of the past. Um, so my suggestion to everyone is if you read anything about, um, and I think it could be anything besides American history, but specifically American history in the founding period, if you read an article and there are no references to original sources, um, you probably shouldn't believe what you're reading. That's actually, of, of, of advices to people reading history, which could even be contemporary history, that's really pretty sage advice and pretty easy to fit on a bumper sticker or a napkin. And that's uh, that. That's a really good point, and I think we miss that. And in- it's easy to achieve for anyone who's posting on social media or writing articles or blogging, because those sources are mostly all available digitally now. So if someone leaves them out of their work, I, you know, it always makes me suspicious of why they're leaving them out of their work. Yeah, well, that's that's probably a rabbit hole we can pursue another time. But that is an interesting interesting thing. When I first reached out to you. It's been a little while. My idea was to, because uh, this is the Culinary Libertarian Show, talk a little bit about food. And I think one of your first responses was, well, you know, that's, that's it's, it's kind of difficult because there maybe isn't a whole lot of information about that. I was like, well, that that's reasonable. But you did have a very interesting response about hydration. So yes. tell us about the colonial hydration, what they drank, and why. Okay. And in the meantime, I'll just let you know that I did review a couple of colonial cookbooks, and we can get into that um, as well. But as far as drinking, you know, everybody has to drink, right? And um, in the story of New York, one thing people are not drinking is water. Um, We were an isolated island, and most of the water available on the island was not drinkable. So people had all kinds of other stuff that they would drink. And of course, socializing at that time, people drank. You know, there's, of course, no, um, like you and I are speaking, you know, um, over modern technology. If you wanted to speak to someone then, you had to do it in person. So people met in taverns, and they met in a little bit uh, more civilized atmosphere, maybe coffee houses, and they socialized and they drank. So, and they also drank at home, but they primarily drank um, various types of fermented beverages um, because the fermentation, of course, made the uh, water safe to drink. And those could range from very lightly fermented beverages, like very light types of beers and ales or hard ciders to, you know, really hardcore beverages. Um, They also drank milk and they drank a type of a chocolate drink using the uh, chocolate available at that time that would have been stirred into hot water and mixed up. And then of course, with the discovery of sugar, that tasted a lot better. Um, But guys and I think the men um, like to go out and they would socialize and they would do their political discussions and their business deals and they would drink. And of course they would drink lots of rum in the Northeast because rum was a big, um, a big um, item that was uh, made in Delaware and Rhode Island. So rum was available at a great price. So people drank rum. Um, If you were wealthy, you might drink Madeira, Spanish Madeira wine. And at least in New York, the quality of your Madeira was a sign of your financial success. They also drank port. And um, they also mixed things in some really weird ways. So I have some drinks here to tell you about that they enjoyed at that time. And one is one that I've heard my reenactor friends talk about, but I've never tasted. It's something called Flip, F-L-I-P. And it's a mix of beer, rum, and molasses, um, eggs or cream. They would mix the whole thing up in a pitcher so it was really well mixed. And then they'd whip it into a froth by inserting a hot fire poker. We put like <laughs> a big froth on the top of it and they would drink that. So there's one. Um, they had something they called a stone fence, which was simply a mix of rum and hard cider. Um, something called that sounds good. That sounds pretty good, right? Especially if you have a really good rum. Good cider. That sounds pretty good. Um, something called rattle skull, um, which is three or four ounces of hard liquor. Preference was rum or brandy. They would pour that into a pint of strong port wine and add some lime juice and nutmeg. So that must have been a killer. And uh, the ladies, of course, would drink um, something similar to our sangria today, didn't have fresh fruit in it. It was Porter Madeira wine with some lemon juice and sugar and nutmeg. And of course, as I mentioned, all kinds of beers as well. So there was, you know, 
quite an assortment of drinking. And I'm sure they mix that stuff into all kinds of things we don't even know about today because you know how drinking goes. The more you drink, the more creative you kind of get with how you mix what you drink. True. I, I want to ask a question. So lemon and limes in 1770 either they were coming from somewhere or they were getting them out of Georgia or the Carolinas. So even still, there's some transportation involved and then a cost associated to that, but nutmeg. Now that's a thing and that's not domestic. So that's some serious travel. So that makes me think, and maybe this is another another show, but uh, getting into, I've done some, some reading on spice trade. Right. So cardamom and vanilla and, I mean, we had it from Mexico now, but initially either Madagascar or Tahiti uh, and then the whole Spice Islands thing. And there's, well, that's that's a fascinating history. But now it looks, it sounds like we're talking not just about something that's easy to make. You can make mead, you make your own beer, uh, but now we have an expensive ingredient. Yes. And, you know, when you look through some of these recipes, you'll see nutmeg, cardamom, coriander. And for New York City, at least, it's not that unusual to see those available in the shops at the time. Um, you know, hmm. New York City is all about making money. And even in our colonial period, the guys in New York were trading all over the place with people maybe they shouldn't have been trading with under, you know, the British Navigation Acts. But there was a lot of stuff available in in New York from the Middle East and from Asia at that time. So in one of the cookbooks I looked at, you know, there are even things like mulligatawny soup and different types of curry recipes because you could get those spices in New York City. Interesting. So you mentioned coffee at a coffee house. Yes. So I know a little bit about coffee. So we have coffee and water. So my question is, if the coffee isn't, if the water isn't potable by itself, did simply boiling it for the coffee make it potable or are we having rather curious coffee here? Yeah, they, they did a couple things. And they also, you know, they, they call them coffee houses, which is interesting, but coffee wasn't the favorite beverage. You can probably guess that the Asian tea was favored, but again, you need water for that. And it depended. You could boil the water, of course, or you could send someone um, north up north of New York City in what would be Midtown today or maybe Greenwich Village today. And there were a whole system of freshwater streams and ponds that people would collect water from, freshwater streams. And there were people who went up and collected water as a living and brought it down and sold it. So, you know, if you had a servant, you might send them up to, there to collect um, the water to be used. Well, and that sounds a little bit even like today, that's New York City's, well, used to be, one of the things it was famed for was its spectacular drinking water from the um, aqueduct up in wherever it is. That's right. And and eventually that's what we do. We build an actual aqueduct that brings that water down from north of New York City from up in the Hudson River Valley. Well, now that is interesting. So uh, at the end, we're going to uh, g give links to those books and all the uh, show notes information will be at culinarylibertarian.com slash 48. And because uh, I, I want to read those books. And I have a friend, his name is Phil, who is a bartender. And he, uh, he and I have done a couple of podcasts about uh, adult beverages. And he would be very interested to learn about this stuff. You might want to try making some <laughs> and see how they go. He might. He, he would like that. He would like that. So... Well, very good. So, you know, progress happens, time passes. Uh, one of your recent posts was about the pleasure gardens in Manhattan. And I had no idea these existed. And I've been to those streets where those were. And to my knowledge, there's no suggestion that that was ever there. No, no hint, no hint know. at all. Um, yeah, as far as you could tell, it's always been brownstones and skyscrapers. Right. Um, my first... My first like exposure to the fact that there was something unusual up there was many years ago when I first looked at my first map of colonial New York City and I saw like two squares of land around probably where Soho, Tribeca is today, Chinatown called, one was called Vauxhall Gardens and one was called Ronelai Gardens. And I, I thought, well, what the heck are these things? 
And so I looked them up and it turned out they were named for two pleasure gardens in London. And the pleasure garden concept comes to us from London in Europe. And it's a place to socialize. And, you know, a lot of us have seen those old movies taking place in Europe or England where people are out, they're out at a ball or a party and they're ornate, they're walking by ornate fountains and topiaries or maybe a maze made of hedges and people serving food. Those would be like pleasure gardens. Um, these giant gardens that are all unique. They all have different types of flowers and hedges and topiaries and fountains. And uh, people would go and pay an admission price. Um, there would be music there, um, food, there'd be food as well. And these gardens would compete for customers. And, you know, I wonder if the term Madison Square Garden comes from one of those original pleasure gardens that was in that area um, at Madison Square. I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if that wouldn't be the origin of Madison Square Garden as well. It's funny you mentioned that, and I don't remember, but the, the New York Encyclopedia, um, I remember been so long ago I have forgotten the entry, but there is an entry about how this now famously round thing is called the Square Garden. But uh, you could be right. Uh, when I read the post about the Pleasure Gardens, one of the things that I found interesting and I didn't really think about is daily life. So right. we think, you know, okay, we got a war to fight and there's some interesting things going on uh, about that. So we've got this, this focus on finding independence, but there's also... Uh, steel to mine to make the cannons and the cannonballs and the rifles. And now we have iron forgery and um, or forging, I guess, and uniforms. So now we have wool and, and, and industries around preparations and maintenance of war for independence. And, and maybe even still we have some of these massive industries now. But the thing that I think is overlooked is someone still had to make dinner and and mend clothes and go tend to the garden and maybe put the kids to bed. That's right. It all had to get and, done. And uh, but, go ahead. Well, that's just, it seems easily overlooked because there doesn't, you know, not all heroes wear capes, but we don't really think about who is home doing, you know, feeding the dog and all this stuff that happens and washing the dishes. There's nothing glorious about that. You know, there, you know, war isn't glorious. And I don't mean to say that it is, but there is now with this time that has passed, we have, we have a level of reverence. Now we can talk about whether that's a healthy thing and how much is enough. Uh, I remember I lived a few years ago near the Princeton, the Princeton battlefield. And there's a lot of history at the Princeton Battlefield. And even just knowing of Sullivan seeing Washington on his horse, thinking that, oh, my God, my general's been killed. I have a real strong sense of place. So when I stand at the Princeton Battlefield, I can sort of think about, wow, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that happened here. And this was a really important battle. This really turned the tide. And I kind of get swept up in that. And that's, I think, one of the fun things about thinking about going on a tour with you is not just this is the really great places, but there's another side to this. And so what, what can you share about the other half of the story, which is somebody's home, making dinner, you know, the, the kids are crying and <laughs> the kids are crying and my husband's out fighting a war. Well, that's part of colonial life. Right. And and that's one of the things I try to do on my tours, walk through the old colonial part of New York City and recreate what life was like there. And, you know, just like today, there were different classes of people for whom, you know, life was quite different. Um, but everybody had to get the clothes made. Everybody had to get the clothes washed. And of course, they didn't wash clothes the way we do today or as frequently. And, you know, when you see those ladies in those beautiful gowns, they often didn't wash that outer gown that you see, but only the underclothes, the men as well. 
Um, so only the underclothes are getting washed. Everything is done by hand. And uh, at least in New York City, we had marketing areas where you could go to market and buy a lot of the ingredients you needed um, to run your household. But all of those were local, right? Locally sourced things. And you know, when I was looking through this cookbook um, to see what kinds of ingredients they were using, um, they're all, of course, local ingredients, but, you know, this was the American colonies and they had a much greater assortment of food, meat, seafood, fish, um, vegetables available to them than when you compare it to a cookbook from England at the same time. So you see a real range of recipes for all kinds of things using a lot of local vegetables, um, meat, fish, and seafood. And of course, when they would slaughter an animal, which, you know, if you were eating meat, so say for instance, you were going to um, have a lamb, you didn't just go out to the butcher and buy the leg of lamb, you went out, you bought the whole lamb. So now you have a use for the entire animal. So you're going to cook every part of it, um, the head, the feet, um, the body, the internal organs, you're going to use them all for different things. And we see this, um, I found a recipe for calf's head, head soup. Um, because if you're having veal, you're going to use the whole animal. So it's a little bit different from us today in that we go to the store and buy the parts of the animal that we want. At that time, you likely bought the whole animal. Sometimes you bought the whole animal for slaughter and whoever was the cook in your home slaughtered the animal at home. New York City, because we were so crowded, kind of frowned on that. So we had a, 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 an area a little bit north of the town where you found slaughterhouses and you would take your animal there for slaughter and then, you know, bring, bring it home to consume it. Um, but in a lot of areas, you know, farmers, they just picked the animal that was going to be the food for the next few days and they slaughtered the, the animal and uh, dressed the meat and then they used it in a variety of dishes. So the the meat packing section, I think, is still there. It's called the Bowery, right? Yeah, that's a little um, yeah, that's a little further higher than where it was in the colonial area. But but it's the same concept that that's isolated from the rest of the town. There has been and remains a interest in returning to some of that, I'll use the word provincial just because it's a little bit easier, kind of living. So, and and one of the things that's tying in, at least in the concept here, is uh, food freedom. Right. And there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of, every state has its own cottage laws. And every state has people who are making at their house, they're making a pie or muffins or Depending on the state, you may what you can and can't sell changes. But the idea is that they're making these things, and you come to Sally's house and you buy a pie and you pay Sally, and you get a pie and she gets money and everyone's happy. Voluntary transaction, who cares? Well, it turns out government cares a lot, but that's another conversation. But the also into finding uh, artisanal isn't the word, but finding local farmers. So buy locally, eat locally. So uh, I think that they probably didn't eat meat with the frequency we do because meat's expensive and meat's perishable. And what are you going to do with it? Um, so there's, there is a focus. And I've talked to uh, a few podcasts ago, a Texas rancher who raises chickens. And it's the same idea. She's just this little, I mean, little is relative compared to, say, Tyson. But she's a little farmer just selling chickens to her neighbors. You can't buy them online. You can't buy them, you know, 400 miles away. There's a return to more of the eating local. Right. And I think something that I see here still in New York City today that people did in the 1700s was to go out to the farmer's market. Um, New York City was tiny, but it still was a city. And the farmers would go in and set up a booth and they would sell their fruits and their vegetables, just like people in my neighborhood go to the local farmer's market on Saturday mornings. So it's a similar thing. And they would buy whatever was fresh and available and take it home and, you know, add it to their meals. They also would have very big, especially in New York, were um, fish and seafood markets as the waterways were plentiful. Lots of oysters. I find lots of um, recipes for oysters all different ways. Um, so there's lots of oysters, there's shrimp, there's different types of fish. And, you know, you would go to the market to your local, you know, fisherman and see, you know, what he had that day, lobsters, um, shrimp, whatever you liked, and you'd buy it and bring it home for that day's meal. Um, if you have a servant, your servant probably would go out every day and do the shopping and buy what was fresh and bring it home. 
Um, I have a wonderful recipe here on how to make a fresh salad, which tells, you know, the, the cook to go out in the morning and, and pick the salad leaves nice and fresh and put them in a bowl of cold water until you're ready to use them. And then there's a, a lovely salad dressing here made with um, egg yolks and, um, and spices. Um, so it looks to me like, at least in the New York area, um, and this cookbook is from Williamsburg, um, that they ate very well, that there was an abundance of food here um, that didn't really exist um, in their home countries. Well, that's an interesting thought. And, and that's going to, that will, we'll touch on that again, just as, as a nation, we're going to touch on that at Thanksgiving time. And, and I think that there's, and there's a lot of wrong ideas about Thanksgiving. But one of the one of the wrong ideas I think is that there wasn't. I don't want to get on the Thanksgiving tangent, but I think that the one of the main ideas is that they skimped and saved for this big feast, and then went back to being sort of food paupers. When I don't think that's the case at all. I think there was. Oh, I well, think there was plenty all the time, as long as you know it's not winter time. Right. Well, you know, if if you're thinking about New England. And, and the Puritan tradition in New England, the Puritan tradition was to eat as little as possible, right? Because the Puritans kind of like are denying <laughs> various types of uh, pleasure in life, seeing it sort of as bad. So the Puritans and some of the Quakers in Pennsylvania also kept to a very simple and sparse diet. You know, the idea being that you should be hungry when it was time for every meal to come around. So there's a little bit of that going on, that even though it's all there and available, it's not necessarily good to take advantage of it. Um, coming from New York City, I don't see that the case. Everybody was eating and drinking um, who could, you know, and, 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 you know, enjoying as much as they could. Um, so you don't see that kind of, um, what do you want to call it, like willing denial in places like New York or Williamsburg that you might have seen in New England or Pennsylvania. Right. The, the goings-ons in Manhattan, and perhaps maybe the most famous <laughs> scoundrel, was Alexander Hamilton. And, and, that's, and, and there's enough about him. He doesn't need any more attention. But one of the things, aside from you know, having to make the food and do the things that are part of life, well, turns out that the colonial people were human beings in all ways. That's right. <laughs> so there was there was some maybe less than becoming behavior amongst some of them, and and so Al comes back as being maybe the most famous or infamous of them, but. Without getting too salacious, what kind is there? I know you've posted some of this information, but is there? Do we have a lot of this occurrence? Do we, or well, just the famous people getting caught, or what's going on? I, I can tell you probably the most enduring and infamous rumor is um, about actually Hamilton's uh, nemesis, Aaron Burr, and uh, Aaron Burr, you know. You probably know I just wrote a book about his daughter that'll be out next spring. And Aaron Burr, although he's a really interesting, incredible man to learn about, was a horrible womanizer. And his friends even said that this was one of the weakest points of his personality was that he couldn't resist women anywhere. And as a result, there were people all over, wherever Burr traveled, who claimed their children were his, you know, from Philadelphia when he was a senator to New York to uh, around Albany. Um, but the most infamous, um, probably Aaron Burr adultery story that's still around today, and I had someone ask me about it on a tour the other day, is whether or not he was the father of our eighth president, Martin Van Buren. And, and Martin Van Buren also happens to be the first president born in the United States of America. And he was born only a few miles from where Aaron Burr's only legitimate child, his daughter, Theodosia, was born. And he was born six months before Theodosia. And uh, he was born in a town called Kinderhook, which is around our state capital today, Albany. And people in Kinderhook said they saw Burr around with Mrs. Uh, Van Buren all the time. <laughs> And then suddenly she turns up and has this baby nine months later. And this is probably one of the biggest uh, enduring New York legends is that, you know, Burr was really Martin Van Buren's father. Oh, that is an interesting story. Is there any way to, I mean, how do you verify that? 
Well, I guess probably today you could do it with, you know, DNA with ancestors or something. Um, but, but that, that rumor stayed around a lot and that, you know, they, they didn't, you know, that's probably a totally different podcast, but they did not view sex or sexual relationships at all in the way we do today. You can't just leave that hang. So how, no, so, <laughs> how, so there's, how did they view them? So there's like, uh, you know, there's brothels, you know, the prostitution was not illegal at that time. You know, prostitution wasn't illegal in New York until I think like the 1890s around there sometime pretty late. Um, so prostitution is a, perfectly legal thing. And, um, this is a way a woman who had no other way to support herself could support herself. And, uh, brothels were everywhere and men frequented brothels, you know, they had, you know, parties and food and drinking. And, um, there's a lot of artwork that depicts brothel life at that time. And I think it was just expected in some way that men went to brothels. Um, it again, depended on the community and the town, those that were more, you know, Puritan or Presbyterian and their religious, religious beliefs would have, or Quaker would have frowned upon those behaviors, but not everyone in the colonies was. Um, so somebody who was, I was reading someone I like referred to it as a much more lusty time. And that, you know, the beauty of women was, uh, you know, really, really talked about and looked at in a much more sexual nature than, you know, we would, say today, let's say in um, proper company. Ah, well, that is an interesting side of New York or even in not just New York, but colonial life that I, <laughs> that I wouldn't have even anticipated. And, you know, I've recently been getting into, you know, um, clothing at that time. And um, I have a book here, a couple books here about, you know, very authentically how women dressed. And, you know, I looked at it and I said, no wonder Hamilton and Burr were such womanizers. You know, the women looked gorgeous. They just looked looked gorgeous. The, the clothes just accented everything beautiful and curvy and attractive about them, as did the hairdos and the makeup. It was all very attractive, you know, not as revealing as we have today, you know, because everything was mostly covered up. But it was covered up in a way that was, I think, to men, you know, very intriguing and attractive. It's probably somebody else's show, but that's a very interesting idea. And that's it's something that I don't with really, another thing I don't really think about is is that I mean, we see the pictures and all I think is, oh my gosh, that looks so hot. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so <laughs> but that it was designed also to be, well, frankly, visually appealing is is something that I think jars us a little bit in our conception of our colonial forefathers. Right, right. And, and you know, you mentioned the pleasure gardens. Of course, they would all dress up to go to these pleasure gardens. And depending on the period of time, you know, the ladies would be in all kinds of wild attire. You know, there was one time when, you know, the hips were accented and there were little pillows you wore under your under your skirts that made your hips very wide. And then Later in the 1700s, the butt was more attractive. So there were two pillows that went on your butt that made the rump look really big. And the, and the dress had all of these ruffles and bows that would accentuate that, where the whole front of your body would be very flat until you got to the bust, which then would be accentuated in the front. And then, of course, the deep necklines and the big hairdos. And, you know, so... Um, obviously the costumes are created to accentuate parts of the body that men would find attractive. Because I'm curious and, and <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Is, do you have any reason to think that the opposite is true of men's fashion for the women? It probably was, but I don't know that much about the, the items in men's fashion and, and what they specifically meant when you looked at them you know, what they were intended right. to convey, but, but I'm sure, I mean, when you, you, when you look at costuming from the period, you know, the, the, the clothes make the men look very handsome as well and very attractive. And especially when you figure they're doing um, all of those complex dances and, you know, all of the ruffles and flowing clothes, I'm sure looked very attractive, both I'm because sure the men wore all the ruffles and lace as well. You know, the, some of the, some of the clothes look not, I mean, it's like, man, it was, you there's something about that, and I don't remember the the, the word for Taylor isn't the word, but there's just the like, haberdashery, maybe is it? But there's something about that look 
just the the idea of being dressed so well. Right. It's, it's, it, 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 I can appreciate that, man, that would, that would look at me. Of course. Why would you not do that? I mean, just that's, you know, kind of cool. And now we have, you know, shorts and t-shirts that have slogans on them. Right. And people at that time would have recognized, you know, the type of fabric that the outer jacket was made of, and they would have recognized the type of lace or the pattern lace that maybe was showing out from under the mm -hmm. sleeves for both the men and the women. And, you know, all of those things they would have recognized as establishing, you know, your place in society, how much you were able to afford. And by the way, both of our guys, Hamilton and Burr, spent a tremendous amount of money um, looking as wealthy as they could. And they both spent themselves into serious debt doing that. Well, yeah. <laughs> little has changed. Yeah, yeah. So so that's an interesting part of their lives as well, where some of the guys who were extremely wealthy, like um, like Hamilton's friend, John Jay, was very understated in what he wore and what his home looked like, um, where the guys who came from newer money, you know, were much more interested in showing off their money by how they dressed and what was in their home and the food they served and the drinks they served. And in the case of those two guys, both of them really going into debt to do that. But is, there's also an age difference between Jay and Hamilton. Right, right. Jay, Jay is older than both guys. Jay's about so, a decade older. And he comes from very old New York money. So he's not going to feel as much of a need to establish his place in society because he's born into his place. Right. And the upstart Scotsman's trying to get in. And Burr's kind of trying to run away from his place. You know, Burr... Karen, let me take a minute to tell the folks about another way to fill in the gaps of education. History is poorly taught in schools, but so too are the topics of economics, entrepreneurship, free markets, and how does money work? To fill that gap, father and author Connor Boyack created his Tuttle Twins series. Connor takes classic works like Bastiat's The Law, Griffin's The Creature from Jekyll Island, and Rand's Atlas Shrugged and condenses the narrative into kid-friendly text but keeps the spirit of the message. With ten books currently in the series, the topics cover a wide range of important ideas schools simply do not address. And frankly, parents should want to be the ones teaching this material anyway. Now, Connor and the Tuttle Twins make that possible. Click through with my affiliate link culinarylibertarian.com slash Tuttle Twins and see the series for yourself. Check out the offer for companion materials perfect for homeschooling or fixing the errors from the state schools. Adults can get something from these books as well and the illustrations help the kids see and hear the concepts. culinarylibertarian.com slash Tuttle Twins now, let's get back to the interview. Burr was um, the great evangelist, Jonathan Edwards' grandson. And, you know, Burr is spending a lot of his time trying to, you know, sever his ties to that strict Presbyterianism. That's a that's a heavy yoke to bear. Yeah. And, and a lot of times when I mention that on the tour, people are just stunned. People who know who Jonathan Edwards was and know his role in history kind of stunned to hear that Aaron Burr was his grandson. Yeah, that's it's a fascinating time. Yeah, it really, it, it really is. And, um, you know, and, and the one thing you see, you know, if you want to get back to food and drink a little bit is, um, you see the self-sufficiency, right. In the colonial period where people came here, they didn't have a lot and they had to exist when they got here. Um, when they initially got here, a lot of the stuff they brought with them didn't grow or the animals couldn't thrive. And their only source was to really befriend the local tribal people and learn how to grow things and learn what kind of animals to eat and learn how to hunt from them and to establish, you know, a good relationship with them so that they could survive. And over time, you know, they created a brand new world here, um, a, a new economy based on growing these new types of foods and, uh, creating new types of drinks. And um, then they start selling these to each other. And um, you might know that in the Caribbean, they only grew sugar and some tobacco. So that's an opportunity for the Northern colonies to sell all of the things they grow and make up here to those Caribbean islands. So that's an economic opening for them that they take advantage of. 
And uh, we create our own little economy over here in order to survive. And everybody participates in that um, rather than from them farmers growing and selling their food to people who are sewing and making clothes or making shoes or making furniture or, you know, Paul Revere, you know, we all know him from, you know, his uh, engraving of the Boston Massacre, but he made silver. He made some fine uh, and beautiful silver. I, I saw a, a big, big display in the museum in Boston and it's the workmanship and not just that you made a picture, it's that the little filigree on the feet and the lines and the decoration and the intricacy of the handle meeting the picture, that, <laughs> like, that, I mean, I'm a klutz, so I can't do that, but I'm amazed oh. at the, it's spectacular work. It's like, holy smokes. No wonder this guy's, I mean, yeah, sure, the British are coming, but the work, in the in the silver is amazing. It's spectacular, right? There what was a, a lot of lot of appreciation for you know master craftsmen of that type and the work they could do. Um, you know, when I went to visit Hamilton's home, one of the things I noticed was that on the dining table the silverware was upside down. And I asked the docent, why is the silverware upside down? And and she said because they would display it with the silversmith's name showing. The silversmith, of course, would oh. sign each piece. That way the name would be showing and your guests would know, you know, who the artisan was who made your silver. So various artisans had had quite a following. And, you know, to put in a pitch for old radical New York, um, colonial New York allowed master artisans to vote without a race or religion or property requirement. Well, now that's impressive. We valued our artisans. We assumed that if you could, you know, make it to the top of your field, you were responsible enough to vote. <laughs> yeah, well, let's bring that back those days. Interesting, right? So you can really see merit being rewarded over here. And so if merit is highly rewarded, then everyone is going to work extra hard to be the best in their field, to be the best that they could, you know, to be the best seamstress or, you know, even the best cook, the best gardener, the best housekeeper, because you're going to be rewarded for that by earning more and having a reputation, having more clients. Um, so you see this, uh, you know, since we're both libertarians, this uh, merit-based free economy grow. That really is interesting. So you're incentivizing the behavior, but also, which is an interesting thing, um, working at building a reputation. And so... <laughs> <laughs> we won't go here, but Walter Blackwood has something to say about reputation. Right, right. And that builds a community, doesn't it? And that's where really this whole thing gets to, gets going is talking about community, which is what we talked about with the, you know, the, the, the butcher tending to the needs of the people. And then you've got the silversmith and probably the, the baker and the cook, although those would be different things. And and so we, we talked a minute about uh, history books, and we won't talk about the books, but we'll talk about one guy. And that's Brian McClanahan, who on his podcast and, and his, I guess, I don't know, slogan or whatever his pitch was, uh, think locally, act locally. And and really what he's doing, I think, is, is working at this. Now, he's focused on Southern traditions, but we have a lot of that in colonial, of, of being in your community, be a part of your community, contribute to the the business across the street, not the business around the world. Now, you know, if times have changed and of course we like to buy from, you know, the, the online marketplace, but still there's something about spending your money in your town, not just for the not just for the the dollars, but contributing to the welfare of the person who made the silver spoons or the painting or whatever it is. And there's a lot to be said, I think, for maintaining that sense of community, even when you're not in, you know, in your giant city like New York. It's not really a giant city. You're on your block. Your block is your community. That's right. That's right. And everyone knew everyone. And, you know, just like today, people placed ads in the newspapers. And, um, you know, um, you'll see ads for different types of um, Irish oats, very competitive, you know, well, my oats come from this part of Ireland, and mine come from <laughs> this part of Ireland, you know, and um, all stuff that meant something, you know, to people at the time, um, where they're 
anything they bought that was imported, you know, the importer would list when the ship was coming in and on what date and how long it would been at sea so that people would know how fresh everything was. So they're competing, you know, for um, their place in that in that market, that little marketplace. Fascinating stuff. This is going to be very unfair. I'm going to ask you anyway, of all of the sites and all of the places, do you have any favorites? And what is favorite to you about them? Wow. Some of my favorite spots. Well, you know, I you have to say Francis Tavern simply because they've been there since 1719 and it's a great look at what a colonial building looked like. So that's a great spot. St. Paul's Chapel and Graveyard. I would say the number one place on Manhattan Island to visit. They've been there since 1766. The church um, is a reproduction of London St. Martin in the field. It's a gorgeous Georgian church showing off the wealth of colonial New York. The graveyard is full of people significant from the Revolutionary War period, from printers to soldiers to merchants and every other kind of person you could imagine. Um, St. Paul's is just a wonderful place. And then outside of New York would be John Jay's country home, the John Jay Homestead at Katona, where John Jay built a working farm um, on which he retired after serving as governor of New York, a beautifully restored site. Yeah, you, I've seen the pictures you posted and the interesting story about the yellow brick for the tavern. Yes. And that was... That was an interesting read. Yeah, That's even little things like that. What color brick you use to build your home? You know, you've used the Holland brick. Well, you are now super rich and everybody knows it. You know, nothing has really changed. No. It's the, it's in, now it's, you know, I, I don't even know what it probably is. Maybe which particular version of which particular phone you have or it used to be sneakers. And I'm sure probably still it's uh, automobiles or whatever, but I and that's probably just part of the human condition. It's just the things change, but the the symptom is the same. Right. And, and, you know, and I think that that's really the way to get people interested in prior time periods is to talk about the people themselves. And then today people can relate and say, wow, they weren't so different than we are. You know, um, you know, I talk a lot on my tour about all the name calling that went on, the insult flying, how much they would love Twitter, um, you know, things like that, um, because they were just like us. They just lived at a different time with different tools available to them. Well, so let me ask you, and this is a, you, you mentioned your customers. So who, is there such a thing as a, are you getting a wide demographic or are you getting more or less a certain age group? And since they're paying for it, I assume they're coming with some level of engagement because they paid. But do you find that they're really interested in learning about this? I do. And I find I get each tour attracts a different type of people. So the Revolutionary War tour um, has a broader attraction. And I get people from, you know, around the world for that, from in America, across the political spectrum. And I get all age groups, and you're going to laugh here, except millennials. So I get kids up through teens, and then I get a big absence in age group, and then people from their late 30s on. I, if, if there's somebody in that, you know, millennial group it's kind of stunning to see them on the tour. And if they are on the tour, it's because for some reason they love American history, you know, and they're kind of rare in that respect. Um, my Hamilton and Bird tour though, attracts a lot of women and their daughters, their teen and young daughters, kind of like tween daughters, uh, because they've seen the musical. And that really gives me an opportunity to introduce them to American history and get them more interested in the story beyond what they know from the musical. So I really enjoy doing that tour because that gives me an opportunity to reach out to a demographic that normally isn't interested. And, and, and then a lot of them get interested after they take the tour. And I do get people on that tour that are just purely interested in the history of Hamilton and Burr and the founding period. So I get kind of different people on each of those tours and, you know, try to, um, 
try to kind of make the tour something that will, you know, hook them into continuing to follow me on social media or subscribe to my newsletter, but to keep them engaged with these stories about American history. Do you have, so it's a kind of a two-part question. Do you have, like, is there like one person on every tour and you can see that the light goes on and their eyes change? And then do you get feedback six months, a year later, you know, I've been immersed in this since I've taken your tour and I can't believe I didn't know all this. I get all those things. I get all those things. And and I try to, um, I try to watch, I don't do large tours. So my maximum number during the week is 15 people and on Saturdays is 20. So I don't do large tours because I like to be able to watch everyone as I'm presenting and see how they're responding. So by about 20 minutes into the tour, hopefully I have everybody engaged and making some eye contact with me so that by the end of the tour, you know, they've really gelled as a group and they're laughing at the funny stories and they're having a really good time. And, you know, they're like, um, spellbound by the more, um, you know, um, um, stories about the war and is the war coming through and the more thrilling stories. But I try to add stuff to the tour that appeals to everybody so that by the end they've become a real group and they're interacting with each other and with me just having a great, you know, totally immersive historical experience. That's very cool. How long is it? How long is the average tour? They're two and a half hours. Nice. Well, and, that's and, a they great day. And, and they don't go very far. So I do get a lot of elderly people on the tour who are very capable of doing the whole tour because the town was not even a square mile in size. So you know, we can do the whole town easily without a lot of walk. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, this is just for funsies. And I'm just interested because my I watched this with my uh, oldest 12-year-old daughter the other day because it was a safe movie, but fun. How many times do you get asked, is National Treasure real? You know, when it first came out, a lot of times. Not so much anymore, but I think the funniest national treasure experience I ever had was, um, you know, that takes place at Trinity Church, which is down at Wall Street. And there's a massive graveyard there and it's up on a hill. And um, I was doing some research in the graveyard and I saw a woman behind Trinity Church uh, down on the lower level where the street is kind of trying all of these weird little doors that open up under the graveyard. (laughs) There's a stone wall there with these mysterious doors in it. And um, she couldn't get any of the doors open. And she made her way up to the graveyard and she walked up to me and she says, do you know how you can get, you know, into those catacombs under the church where they found all that treasure? (laughs) Like really seriously, I looked at her and I said, you know, I really don't know, but I'm sure if you go into the church and you ask some of the, you know, security guards in the church that they'll be able to help you. So that was one of my weirdest experiences that someone really thought those catacombs were there and you could go down there and and look at them. I I don't know if that's funny or sad. I mean, the only thing under there is the Lexington Avenue subway line, which goes right under the church. Well, that's not very thrilling. All right. So I'm going to ask you some food questions, which have nothing to do with your tour, but these are going to be kind of fun. Short answer questions. Okay. Of the five flavors, sweet. Salty, sour, bitter, and umami. Which one do you enjoy the most? Oh, salt. I hate to admit it. There's nothing wrong with salt. (laughs) Sodium is vital for your life. (laughs) What is your favorite food? Oh, my gosh. My favorite food. That is really hard because I I love to cook and I love food. Um, Wow. My favorite food. You know, uh, something that I can't make myself, which is really high quality sushi. Ah, okay. What's your least favorite food? Oh, um, my least favorite food is something I just won't eat at all. Lamb or goat. Oh, that's interesting since we talked about goat butchering or lamb butchering. What gets you excited? Um, and ever, ever, about, about food? Whatever. Pick. Um, trying a cuisine I've never tried before. What turns you off? Something common that I ate all the time growing up. What sound do you love? Hmm. I think probably the wind blowing through the trees and plants and greenery. It's a good sound. What sound do you hate? Any type of screeching. <laughs> in the wrong city. <laughs> what is your favorite food indulgence? Oh, that was definitely some, would be some, really good 
juicy fruit dipped in really decadent milk chocolate. I like your answer. Yep. <laughs> For people in New York or planning a vacation trip, and I was, I think, actually a little surprised to hear you tell me that they come from around the world. How can they contact you to book a tour and how can they follow you on social media? Great. Well, PatriotToursNYC.com. And you can find me on social media as Patriot Tours NYC. Excellent. And I'm already there following all that. But I will put links to those things up. Again, the show notes is going to be culinarylibertarian.com slash 48. And when we're done, send me, uh, if you would, the uh, are the books you found available for purchase or are they just are they online to view what's you can find them at a place called archive.org so i'll post the links to archive.org okay and if you can send those to me i'll put them also on the show notes page just because i i think that's very interesting and that would be a lot of fun to look at that stuff. some of these recipes look really great you might want to try them i might try some well let's coordinate we'll try them together over a weekend and then compare notes yeah it would be really fun i mean it, they, they made some really good stuff. I was kind of surprised. I always had this idea that the food would be really dull and, you know, uninteresting, but not at all. Well, that's good to know. That's even more, a, a richer, more complete picture of daily life when you're not making cannonballs and shooting them at people. Right. Uh, or, or, you know, sewing your clothes, doing the laundry, cleaning the floors. Emptying the chamber pots, right? You know. Ooh, yeah. Jeez, I didn't think about that part. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a dirty job, quite literally. Yeah. But someone's got to do it. Now we do that with our cats, and we think we're we think we're cosmopolitan. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Karen, thank you so much. I appreciate your patience with things that no one knows about, but it was it was a hiccup getting here, but we worked it all out. Yeah, thanks for inviting uh, me. It's been great. Fascinating. I, I'm, I've commented on your um, uh, Facebook page that I'm back when I was working in Manhattan, the history wasn't the thing I concerned myself with. I was working in Tribeca at a very posh restaurant, so the only thing I could think about was getting back the next day and getting home and history was not on my radar, but I'm, I'm feeling a great personal sense of loss at not knowing this was there. And I'm so making up for my missed New York education, one Facebook page at a time. Well, thanks for following Dan. And you know, the next time you're in New York city, make sure you call me. Oh, <laughs> that's definitely going to happen. Absolutely. You got it. All right. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll have a link to the Williamsburg book Karen mentioned on the show notes page, as well as a link to the Colonial Drinks. Karen mentioned the Brian McClanahan book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. I'll have a link to that book up, but also a link to Brian's McClanahan Academy course based on that book. McClanahan Academy has six other courses which get to the deep root of real history. Check them out at culinarylibertarian.com slash McClanahan Academy or click the link on the show notes page. Have a great week and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. You know, you talked about laundering of clothes. Right. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I don't understand bathing in colonial times, but I don't think everyone took baths every day. No. Maybe that's not true. So I would imagine in the middle of New York or in the middle of Washington or Philadelphia in that tiny room for the Continental Congress, eh, it might have been really ripe in It there. could have been. And, and, you know, amazingly, we were cleaner over here than they were in England or Europe. So there's something to be said about that. Um, you know, people did what we would call like the sponge bath with a basin of water and would, you know, bathe themselves and you know, taking a big bath was a big deal. You had to heat all the water, put it in this big tub and,
um, people did do that, but it was a, uh, it was a big production. And I was just learning that women didn't wash their hair with water. They used a, um, a combination of a pomade made with fats and oils and powder to clean their hair. And that they actually had very healthy and clean hair, that this took everything, all of the dirt and grime and everything out of their hair and their scalp. So I was just reading about that a few days ago. So that's how people cared for their hair. And I was at a Revolutionary War reenactment and they were showing how they washed the undergarments, you know, in boiled water with um, lime and they would stir it to get them nice and clean and white and then hang them all up to dry. So, you know, all of the personal hygiene we think of as being so easy was not so easy then. So that took up a quite a bit of time too. So do you think that there was, so let's just say Washington and the Continentals are, it's laundry day. Why don't, why didn't the Redcoats invade them? Is there some sort of- Oh, because they, they weren't doing the laundry. There? there were ladies. There were what they called camp ladies. And it was a whole crew of ladies, usually the wives of the men and the officers, no single ladies. The camp ladies went right along with them, battle to battle, and they manned the camps and they cooked the food and they washed the clothes. And some of them were nurses, so they tended to the wounded or anybody who was sick. So there's a whole like um, culture of camp ladies at that time who go along to each one of Washington's camps. So they're all there too. So it's not just men, all the women are there, are women there too. Hmm. No, we went when we lived in uh, in Jersey. We went to uh, Rockingham to see, which was the Washington's last headquarters uh, before the war ended. He was only there for like two months, but we took a little tour and saw the. the it was a nice. I mean, it was kind of an impressive place, and they had a lot to say. But then I don't. I mean, I don't think Martha. I don't think Martha was on. You know on tour with the war, but they didn't really mention that part. But that was interesting. Just seeing some snippet of, of life then was an interesting thing to see. She went occasionally. She would join really? him occasionally in the camps and uh, she would help tend to the wounded and thank the men. And, you know, she, she was there sometimes, but there's a whole, like whole bunch of women who are really into the whole camp lady reenactment thing. And they all go to all the reenactments and, do the camp lady thing. So there's a whole bunch of ladies who do that. And there's a whole bunch of ladies who also go to reenactments, but they dress as um, kind of socialite ladies. So you'll see them there in the really beautiful silk gowns and big hairdos and stuff. That's they cool. normally wouldn't really be walking around in the camps. Although, unless there was a battle near, you know, a wealthy city like Philadelphia, some of the ladies might've walked over just for amusement to see what was going on. <laughs> Is that wild? <laughs> yeah, let's go over and, you know, see what's going on over in the camp. And you might get a couple ladies all dressed up going over, just looking around. Yeah. Hey, Sally, let's go watch the war. Yeah. Okay. They did it in the Civil War, too, you might know. Let's go have a it picnic just, lunch it, and watch the battle. I, it doesn't sound like entertainment to me, so I wouldn't think about that. <laughs> it's very different. Wow. Do whatever you want to with that link, but you'll have it and you can... Share it as you wish. Okay. Oh, and if you get a chance, if you speak to Brian McClanahan, I love his book, yeah. How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. <laughs> well, I follow him on Twitter, so. Um, <laughs> I sometimes quote Twitter? it just to, you know, get some people provoked on my tour. Oh, that's okay. Trolling is good. Yeah, yeah. Are you on Twitter or not? I don't use Twitter, but I do use uh, Instagram and Facebook, mainly because I do history lessons, and Twitter's kind of hard for that. It is hard for that. I'll send him a tweet saying you said so. Okay. He'll get a kick out okay. of it. Okay. All right. Thanks. Have a good afternoon. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.